From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We've been doing it for eight and a half years now. More than eight and a half years now. This is Cade Massey with two of my longtime collaborators. Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen's going to slide in here momentarily. We're all going to be around for the next couple of hours. We're going to do an open segment to open the show. Then we're going to have an interview talking. What are we going to talk? We're going to talk soccer, I believe. Soccer, World Cup, a little bit of a... No, that's it. Soccer. We're talking soccer, World Cup. And um, maybe a little baseball. We're going to talk a little baseball, I think. Then we have some more open segments. We're going to close with a segment on both baseball and politics. We have elections around the corner. A few forecasts involved there. We're going to bring in an expert from 538 for that conversation. So big show, a couple hours. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do these days via Zoom, as we have been doing for two and a half years. Good afternoon, gentlemen. It looks to me like Eric Bradlow is in the office and Audie Weiner's at his home, Shane Jensen. We don't know where he is. He'll be back. How are you guys doing? What are you paying attention to? What has your eye in the world of sports? Let me, can I just jump in and say something that one of my students said to me that will set us off? He said, could you have ever imagined the Yankees losing four in a row and the Jets winning four in a row? (laughs) (laughs) I started to think for a moment, can I do that calculation? (laughs) And that's where I am right now. Well, Adi, this is, it's nice to have the Jets to fall back on, right? I've been thinking about this for the last week. You can imagine why when Texas loses so painfully, we need to be able to shift our sports allegiance focus hedonically and so you need multiple you need to diversify your portfolio so that you can shift your attention when you need to shift your attention and so you know that makes me happy for Yankees fans that you've got the Jets for a change or a change I don't know how real it is I don't think the the market suggests that they're as good as their previous four games have uh, suggested Um, but it certainly is fun and then I also have the Phillies right so I've lived in in Philadelphia for almost 23 years now Um, therefore I they're my adopted team and their presence is also a bit of a shock. <laughs> well, I do want to hear from you. Y'all are the big Yankees fans on this show. And you squeaked through that division series and then man ran into a wall in the championship series. So how, how have you been? What has it been like? It, I think the Astros so clearly have your number that you aren't surprised and you're kind of resigned to it in some level. But I haven't talked to you since then. Oh, I mean, if you had looked, I mean, I'm sure I could look this up. If we looked at the betting odds that the Astros would sweep the Yankees, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe, I don't know, plus 1600. I don't know. Half to the fourth. I don't know. I mean, maybe a little bit better than that. Um, I, you know, I expected, I wasn't optimistic that the Yankees would win. I thought there was a chance, but for them to get swept, it seems very different. Like this, I don't know if it's psychological Cade or maybe it's probabilistic and statistical, but when you think about how far you are away from the World Series and being the champion, getting swept in the ALCS <laughs> makes you seem much like if like historically people are going to say the Yankees lost in the ALCS. But if they had lost four games to three versus four games to zero, I think it has a big implication for how you potentially design your team for the following year. Do you need to blow this up or are you just epsilon close? It's hard to argue epsilon close given what just happened. Oh my goodness! Really, that's not an overreaction. Uh, or oh sweep. 
Well, let's be let's be clear about it. Um, it, it was some, a couple of the games were close. Certainly, the final game. There were two other games that were hard fought, and there was only one game. The first game at Yankee Stadium, the Yankees really just weren't in it. Um, they're you know. Hey, Adi, real quickly, let me jump in and say that's an interesting concept right there. You're saying that all sweeps are not equal, equal and, and right. we could actually make that quite precise we could we could do some kind of integral of win probability over the course of this each game or something there's some way to aggregate up and say well actually that's a question we can come back to it because i'm interrupting you but how might you quantify the sweepiness of a sweep because what you're saying is this wasn't that sweepy right i mean there's certainly i mean you don't want to directly talk about point differential because that could allow one game where it's 12 to nothing just sort of dominate the the, the tally um so there's definitely yeah, a body, do you like how about total integrated win probability like uh, at the end of each mm, inning not the happiest with that um uh total integrated you mean across the all nine innings well, that, that's because yeah. if, if you jump out with a lead of say four runs in the first inning you're going to get a lot more um is that really any different than if you run it backwards and got your four runs in the last inning um that's still the same game same score same everything about it except if one was an exciting game and one sort of uh got exciting at the end if you will maybe i don't know i'm not the i don't like the the uh time um irreversibility of win probability and and in a game that where, where score is additive across innings you'd like time reversibility to 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 play a role i mean i'm sounding nerdy here but but i do think well, it is an important Adi, is there so, is there some way to drop it drop a, an inning at every possible location and calculate the win probability given that location if you if they're really if they're, if, I'm not sure it's true. It never changed. So, so arguably, them out. well, so the basic point that I've always liked to make about baseball is that if I told you, uh, if I said to you, uh, Cade, you can, you can pick an, a, a, an extra run to tack on in any inning, um, up to you where you want to put it. Um, which one has the greatest chance of changing your win probability? The answer is it doesn't matter. <laughs> Innings are runs are runs. They add up. Um, it doesn't I, matter I, where you put but them. But Adi, is that strictly true in a game with strategy and pitcher decisions and things like uh, that? Not strictly, strictly true, but it's not soccer. Adi, you just you're right. Yeah. It's it, am I still here? Uh, it's it's not yeah, soccer. A soccer is a sport where taking the lead cha- fundamentally huge strategic that. differences in soccer. Yes. Um, and but that's not baseball. Baseball is inning based. They end. Um, and then within an inning, you have to potentially have strategy of what to do, but um, playing for one run, playing for more runs. But if I just simply t- said, you know, moved an inning, it, at least mathematically, it, it doesn't affect your anything. And, I, and uh, there's a little strategy and resource management that always comes that's, up. That's what exactly. Yeah. That, that, that comes up and we, and that's certainly a consideration, but I don't think it's, a, it's, I think it's second or even third order. But okay, so I, let's, let's get away from that for a second and just real quickly, this one question. How would you quantify how close a game was then if you wanted to aggregate closeness across the series? What's a, what's a simple way to do it? Because you started with this whole assertion. Let's just quantify Right, I know, because it's, for me, it's, it, it just is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fundamental. It has to do with this, this, the final score, I think, really is the issue. Unless, unless it's really it. garbage time. Okay. Um, we, don't really, we don't really have that in baseball. Well, you football. could also compute the distribution of maximum run differential within a game, which would yep. be you know, another way to measure closeness. Like the game was never more than X number of runs apart. And there were three games that were 
you know, well, this is your garbage time issue, Adi. Yeah, but but this is but you're what you're uh, honing in on. I think is is excitement. I mean, certain games are more exciting than others. So if a, a team takes off a seven to nothing lead and it, everything is very quiet until the ninth inning, and then the the team scores six runs in the bottom of the ninth to make it super exciting. Well, almost eight eight of those innings were just boring dud, and we expected the game to go away. The, probably would have been ninety nine point nine. But that's but that's that's all in support of Eric's model, not your model. Right. I don't like that. I would consider that a close game. Seven six to me is a close game. I don't care how you got there interesting what about garbage? you said garbage time you said garbage time what's no, garbage we don't time? have that in baseball. nothing in the garbage time is not something that we typically have in baseball you play okay. it to the end um in, unless the team really gives up because it's an in-season game and they have to manage their bullpen well, and I, so i mean this is a great question about what metric would you use to summarize the closeness of games in a series uh like for example so none of the games i think were extra inning games right no so there were 36 innings played do we even know how many innings were the Yankees leading? Uh, only in the, I think in the last game were they were they actually leading. Uh, All right, so that's one measure. That's a, that's a simple. I love it, Eric. That's a really simple measure. But it it's doesn't mean the games aren't close. Particularly if you have to ask yourself, how often did they have the winning run either on, at bat or on deck in, in in the ninth inning, things like that. But I mean, right, well, those are other metrics. So there are ways to do it, but we haven't, and we haven't done it. Maybe we'll apply some some of our thought to doing it. But my general sense is that these three of the four games, at least, were good games. Um, and but that's but I still with you that the Yankees still got blown out in some capacity. And the reason why I say that is that they just had so many terrible at bats and also horrible at bats in important situations. They just didn't look like a championship team. Oh, well, you well, know, now I want you to qualify that again because oh, just well, we've seen like- the stats. Here's two stats that back up what Adi said. The Yankees, I think, had the lowest batting average of any team, like. I don't know if it's ever in any postseason series, but certainly in the ALCS, and they had more strikeouts than any other team. They basically averaged, I think it was something like 14 or 15 strikeouts per game in total. So, I mean, there's actual summary statistics of the game performance, like batting average, OPS, strikeout rate that show that this was a historically bad performance. How do we attribute performance of between the pitching staff of the Astros and the hitting of the Yankees on those stats? Are there, is there any way for us to partition those two things? I think with advanced analytics, right? Like I'm sure given where the pitches were located, like with motion, with, with tracker data, right? Couldn't we compute an expected batting average and an expected you know, runs produced given where the pitches are? I mean, this is entirely the frontier of pitching analytics right? uh, to do that. And there has been some progress made. I think MLB stats, advanced stats is working on those kinds of statistics. It's somewhat hard. You need to have very good command of the stat cast data, the spin rates, the locations. Some of that is, is encoded with error. So you have to be careful with that. But speaking of encoded with error, there was an awfully shaky strike zones that were um, oh. that called. I mean, I have to say, Shane, Shane's not here to to, uh, to to kibitz on this score, but I was practically ready to bring in the robo-umps in, during the series. <laughs> and I'm generally dead set against it. And it's not like the Yankees weren't getting their own share of calls. They were. But being as terrible hitting team as they were, at least of their command of the strike zone, their their approach, their batting approaches, those widened strike zones or unpredictable strike zones were just killing them. I mean, even in the final, the, one of the games ended on a check swing, which at least to my eye was not a check, was, was a check swing. They called it a strike. Um, 
and uh, it was certainly close. It's not like it was it wasn't obvious, uh, but but to me to end the game on a on a close call check swing just is stunningly bad bad decision. Uh, Adi, re- re- real quick, um, is do robo umps have anything to say about check swings? Uh, maybe I don't know what the, I don't know what the technology is. It's a good question. One of these days, we, we can get an answer to it. Yeah, I, I, I do think say, it's interesting. It takes exactly one bad call against your team to convince you that robo umps are the well, way. Well, no, it wasn't yeah, one that's bad. Honest, it was an that's incredible that's honest, number of bad calls, and was it was call after yeah. call after call. I mean, I can I can just I thinking of the the ones that I remember. I mean, uh, I mean, I think Rizzo was struck out even though he had been walked at least once by by the actual uh, balls and strikes, and and I'm talking really out of the strike zone pitches called really? strikes not at the border not not fractions of an inch we're talking yeah. inches outside uh, outside the strike zone that were called strikes yeah. and i mean I'm, i will say yankees were getting their share of calls as well but they seem to be far more adversely affected by the in, you know the impossibility of the of the of the pitch calls in some measure but let, let's get this call this let's just look right this in the eye and, and eric and i have to do this the yankees didn't look good um, they didn't look good um, outside of the fighter Rizzo and the surprisingly excellent Harrison Bader, um, yeah. who was who hired essentially to be a superstar glove man, um, hitting the cover off the ball. There was just nothing happening by way of the Yankees offense and more than nothing happening. They looked terrible while doing it. And even the great judge did not have good at-bats. He did not no. seem to be doing well. And, and, and superstars like Stanton didn't seem to care. And that's that's the part oh, that was, that can't be the case. It can't how, be the case. How would you right. assess such a thing? But they just, I mean, I mean, they do care, but they didn't seem to have like the fire. And I'm gonna, I hate to say it, I, I went to the Saturday night game with the Phillies versus the Padres, and you know, I went to a lot of at least four Phillies games in September, sparsely attended. Uh, you know, wonderful, beautiful fall afternoons, late summer afternoons, great, enjoyable games. Fans not there. But the Phillies have a lot going for them, and including a team that just really seems to want to win. Now, that is bullshit. Do you but want how, to say those how, words? How, right? you're talking about a team I that, can't believe I'm saying it out loud. because it's no, So, so, so uh, I, yeah. I'm sorry, I just came into this, but I guess <laughs> we're, 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 the, the, we're trying to establish a direct link between wanting to win and actually hitting. Well, yeah, I mean, because it seems like complete and total nonsense. Like, we as statisticians know this is shit. Right. To me, for me to even st- to make this statement, I feel like an absolute, you know, a contract, you know, contradicting everything I sort of fundamentally believe in. But you watch the Phillies and like, gee, they seem like they were having a great time and want to win. And you watch the Yankees and it just feels different. And I think the Phillies were legitimately having a better time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Than the Yankees. were. <laughs> I think also I think a good question you have to ask. I, by the way, I look I'm staring right now at Aaron Judge's regular season batting versus his postseason batting. His OPS for his career is 977. Mm-hmm. Uh, batting average 284. Uh, on base 394 with a slug in 583. His postseason uh, numbers are his uh, OPS is 772 with a 211 batting average and a 462 slug. And he's a small sample. Well, it's 200 plate appearances now. But we so, always, we always expect it to shrink some because they yeah. have better opposition, right? So I know, right. but but a seven seventy two um, is not great. What's also interesting, this could be another theory, by the way, which I started to wonder was his. I don't call it physical breakdown, but um, just so you know, his performance gets monotonically worse in the playoffs by round. 
So again, monotonic position. No, theoretically, it could, be, it could be, but I know it could be facing better pitching. But my question is related to this. Are you going to pay $400 million for a batter who in 200 plate appearances has a 211 batting average and a 770 right. OPS in the postseason? And there's no reason to believe in future postseasons that he'll perform better. I'm not saying well, there it is. And if, if you, again, I, I guess I feel like right. I've convinced you guys about the coin flip model on like a team level. Like, at, like on a kind of an outcome, like results level, though they're the Astros are a pretty interesting. Yeah, we're going to push the theory hard model. This, this yeah, point. no, of course. I, I think there's arguments. The, the, these playoffs have, have, have presented evidence both for and against the coin flip model um, at, at the team level. But then you somehow like 200 plate appearances is enough to establish that, no, he's definitely a worse player in the playoffs. There's no way yes. that would regress upwards towards his like, say, you know, regular season performance. No, I'll use your word, Shane. Yeah, I think there's sufficient evidence to say right now with 200 plate appearances that he's a worse, I didn't say horrible, that he's a worse player in the playoffs than he is in the regular okay, season. Okay, but, but prediction exercise. If you were, let's say, whatever team signs Aaron Judge in the future, if you were to, if I was to say predict his playoff hitting performance, over the next, like, say, five years, next 200 plate appearances in the playoffs, you would not pull him. Do you think your prediction, like the mean of your prediction distribution, wouldn't be higher than his current? It would, but let me just say, I, my the, the, the current performance would be my prior, and then I would shrink towards his regular season, but I wouldn't use yeah. his regular season as the prior and shrink towards his postseason. Well, That's you'd be, interesting I mean, that you're not. I mean, because- I, I, I mean, I think as a Bayesian, you'd kind of shrink them to each other. You'd shrink to, it would be between them, weighted by the amount of at-bats he's had in the regular season versus postseason. No, I wouldn't treat those at-bats as exchangeable. I, I would see. not. Not if yeah, you're trying to predict postseason. But I'm going to, can I point out that I think one of the reasons why we're talking about Judge is because of oh, the we're talking about judges. Right. You guys are obsessed with the Yankees. There's all no, other, no. there's all kinds of other teams out there. No, too. no. Uh, let's just we could have a simple criteria. And who is? Let's look at all the playoffs. Which is the which is the best player? Who who's the player who had the biggest difference between their in season stat and their playoff stat? And it can't be anyone other than Judge. He was the best. Well, player I mean, look, I, I know it would be interesting to look at a Rod prior to two thousand and nine, because this was the thing every Yankee fan. You, I, I listened to you for like a decade whinging around A-Rod and yeah. how he was such a beast in the regular season. They always choked in the playoffs. And then 2009 came along, and he absolutely carried that team to a World Series. Well, I mean, there was other people carrying. I mean, that was I mean, listen, Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just him. But I, I'm just saying, you could be one 2000, Aaron Judge 2009 away from the narrative completely changing because playoffs, I mean, I, I'm not saying they're completely random. 200 at-bats does have signal. But not that much. There's, but yeah, there. I mean, you know, you can Wait, have much, one postseason that completely how, changed the narrative. How, how much could an at bat change the narrative? What if that? What if that ball in Astro in the Astro game yeah. had been two more feet further out right field? Yeah, just one home run, one game winning home run, probably changes the narrative. Yeah. I'm guessing. And all of this is not to say I'm not arguing. I, I, I kind of came into obviously you guys thinking probably ahead to judge and where he's going to end up next year, whether or not you want him to end up with the Yankees. I mean, I think there's plenty of arguments for or against that 
I don't, I honestly, I don't even think the play, you, you know, like his age distribution or his aging kind of like, and everything. I don't even think his kind of quote unquote play bad performance of the playoffs thus far. Um, really is a straw. It, it no, enters it, into that. Calculation I, I don't, I much. agree with that. Tendering, but I do want to take it back to a more analytical bent with respect to some of the fundamental or foundational truths that the analysts have, have imposed and on the game. And that is what they, the, the, dominance of the home run yeah the, the walk and the minimization of the strikeout as if all outs are, are the same and they don't make a difference and so the yankees in some level proved that are, are suggesting that maybe that strikeout ig- ignorance if you will is not good policy for advancement through the highest rounds of the of the re, re, yeah, rephrase, uh, one second rephrase strikeout ignorance please so the basic idea just, is that, and almost no formula that evaluates players treats a strikeout any differently than any other out. They're just an out like every other. And that's something that's not true. That from If you go back to, to, to 10, 15 years ago, and certainly the 80s and 90s and 70s, a strikeout was a terrible thing. Right. I mean, the Joe Morgan School of Baseball treated, and, and I'm, I'm making fun of it, um, treated the, the strikeout as just a, as a terrible, terrible failure but a ground ball to second as uh, as advancing the runner or, or doing what the, the fundamentals are. And so we've gotten so far away from putting the ball in play and away from batting average and towards Woba, et cetera, et cetera, that we may have not asked the foundational question is what's it going to take to beat extraordinarily good pitching in the playoffs? So why yeah. is it, why is it that putting the ball in play is valuable against very good pitching in the playoffs versus I- for me, you're I think for it's small a, game, you're playing for fewer runs. That's the basic it. You don't need seven or eight runs or six or you just need three or four or two or three. But if that's but but we're not no. talking about a difference between a a, a a hit and a strikeout. We're talking about the difference between a ground out and a strikeout. Oh, how no, would that be different? I, you know, uh, first of all, ground outs go through um, and they advance runners. You know, when, how many times well, you ever run what I'm asking. Base? And you can't score them because you've struck out or bases loaded with one out and you can't score because you struck okay, out. So you don't advance runners. That's a fundamental difference between the two things. Shane was going to say something about this. Yeah, no. And, and I think, I mean, obviously that is a fundamental difference. I think it's more just about against really good pitching. Um, you, you need to have basically a diversity of being of how you generate runs. And I think, I, I do think the Yankees have, kind of over almost like under diversified their portfolio why? of hitters. Why, because, why is diversity? Because, well, I, I think because again, man, when you, when we talk about manufacturing runs, a particular, uh, a particular pitcher, like, you know, like it's easier to pitch to a whole team, like in a strategic sense, if you're planning against a team and they're all kind of the same type of hitter and you mm-hmm. can just like, you know, I mean, like, you know, this is a team that basically all only can't hit a curveball. Well, of course that's easier to plan for and, and kind of, you know, like the ev- strategize ev- against evolutionary adaptability of omnivorous. You know, omnivorous. I mean, I, I think the Astros have, are a beast to try and prepare for because they can kind of basically get hits, hurt you in a, a whole range of different types of ways. You know, the they've got me. contact hitters that it can also slug. They, you know, they can manufacture runs. They're not stupid on the base paths, etc. Okay. The only thing I was going to comment on in relation to Adi's earlier comment was my goal for a team when facing an excellent pitch, let's say whether it's Verlander or any of the other pitchers is get them to throw a lot of pitches, get Mm -hmm. them out of the game as quickly as possible. And so what I thought the Yankees did poorly on was they were just, 
they weren't taking enough pitches. They weren't taking bad pitches. And by swinging it back, they're taking actually, a lot of good pitches. Strange, like there was stuff yeah, middle but, middle I mean, that they were like. I know, but but Shane, if you actually look at the number of pitches thrown by the Yankee starters versus the uh, Astro starters, there's no doubt that their starters were able to stay in longer because the Yankees weren't in some sense taking these longer at bats. And in some sense, that's the only way to beat good starters is get them out after five innings, get them out. Cause they've thrown 95 pitches, hundred pitches after five innings. Verlander had 60 pitches after five innings, 70 pitches. That's going to allow him to stay in two more innings. And that's a lot of extra runs. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Uh, and that is, that is a key in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, I just think the Yankees were just so cold hitting wise in general. And I, I again, I, I, I'm almost a little cautious as opposed to how predictive that is into the future. Like you play this series over again right. a bunch of times. I, I, I don't know how often, obviously it went as bad as badly as it could have. Right. It's, it's, but this would, this would be in the tails of that kind of predictive distribution. I, I agree, I, agreed entirely. I, th- and I, 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 can't, I can't help but think about the slump the Yankees went through in whenever no. that was, August, yeah. September. And great everyone point. Like pulling their hair out. And then they turn it around, put on a great streak at the end and play decent early in the playoffs. And so there's just some volatility here. Of course, I always want to say, you know, just variance, guys, just variance. Yeah. It's, I, it's easy to say as the outsider. I'm curious your take on the world series we're going to see so astros phillies you guys just suffered through the astros greatness what about the phillies what's how's yeah. that match up? does the matchup matter these are very different teams in yeah no I, I mean again you know it's still i i it's the my you know again my coin flip i you know i default to kind of the coin flip but yeah about 50 50 you know uh but so you know, like, here's here's, but, a, here's, a, here's a question for you so we look at these regular season records and there are dramatically different like 20 games or something 20 different. games 19 but what, yep. but what do we think the actual effective success ability of the team is like we wouldn't use that full season win percentage to to summarize the astros nor would we do that we, we certainly wouldn't do it for the phillies they seem to be playing above so what numbers do you think more fairly represent how good they are right now just to kind of set the table I mean, the Phillies, I, I guess if you want to put it on the regular season scale, I think the Astros yeah. are playing to their 106 win. They're right. basically right in line. Maybe, maybe higher. A cons- maybe very maybe consistent higher. team, whereas the Phillies yeah. are kind of playing like a high 90s team right now. Well, I still let just, let, let's, this is something that, that, that's often noted, and I think it's particularly applicable here. The Phillies have two really strong starters, um, and then they fall off. And uh, the, the World Series are suited for that. Um, and that's always been an observation that makes the weaker team in the regular season just slightly stronger in the playoffs. It's not like the old days where you get one, four, and seven with your number one starter, and you can have a single pitcher like the big unit just shut you down and that, that kind of stuff. All right, I'm grumbling again. I got to get this out yeah. of my system. Um, but bottom line is that two starters um, and the Nola Wheeler duo, they have a good bullpen. You can overuse your bullpen, your, your back end of your bullpen, especially in the in the world series that you don't do during the regular season so i'd pick the i'd, I'd pin the uh the phillies at about i, I agree with shane got a mid 90s team and the astros are an, a low hundreds team they're the better team but it, it's still close right every yeah. game is still yeah, yeah. For, except for the betting odds at, except for the betting odds at minus 185 that's for the series as a whole not in any the given series, game. right for the series as a whole yeah so if yeah you and took, I, I think that's too extreme uh, even for the series as a whole well if you took if you took 55 percent, 55 45 multiply that over a seven game and sim on that what do you get is it would it be as high as uh 185 
maybe close. What's 185 translate into in terms of probability? Well, back of the envelope calculation, that's tough. I'm on a per game uh, if it were calculated. 65, 63, 65. Oh, no, oh, no that's overall series. Yeah, but I'm yeah, going overall series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But per game okay. basis, what is that? Yeah. Well, what do, someone's going to do a little work here. Um, while we're doing that, what difference does the 232 format make, if any? Are y'all, are y'all telling me home field kind of doesn't matter in baseball? Is that the way to think about it? Or is there a little bit? No, of I mean, I, th- I think it ma- matters a lot. I think there's a psychological element to it. I think, you know, uh, weather-wise, it certainly matters when, you know, I mean, like, like if this was like New York against LA, it would be a huge difference, right? Or, I mean, and Philadelphia. This against is close Houston. to that. This is yeah, very yeah. close to that. Uh, I mean, I, I, the biggest thing that I think it means to me is that, you know, kind of, again, the Phillies are, go- are going to be the away team, right? They've got, you know, so all they have to kind of, I, I think there's a rationale to sort of like, if we can take steal one in Houston, we maybe don't have to come back here again. Right. That or, two, three, or two. we'll come back or we'll come back to Houston up three, two. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, like, basically I think it's sort of like, you know, the away, the quote unquote worse away team for the series can basically by taking one at, at home uh, away in the first two, at least going to have this plan to like wrap it up at home. Okay. Okay, guys, we're going to have to move, grab an interview. But before we do that, have y'all been to a World Series game before? I've never actually yeah. been to a World Series game. Yeah, yeah, are yeah. you going to try to get to the is – it, is it qualitatively different? I would think so. And are you going to try to get there for one of these Philly games? Um, well, I've been there, and I'm, gonna, I'm keeping my eye open. I'm hopeful that maybe one of my insider contacts is able to either take me or allow me to purchase tickets yeah. at, uh, at face value. But at this point, I'm not going to – It's not gonna looking pricey. Up. I'm it's not going to come up to fifteen hundred dollars, which is right now. Yeah, with the yeah, yeah. It's yeah. currently because I've been. By the way, if I'd never been before, I'd consider it. Uh-huh. It's currently on average cheaper to fly to Houston for one of their games. Well, that's what I before you, got on, before you got on, Shane. I was saying I may well yeah. go to Houston because the Eagles are playing the Thursday night game down here, um, right? So that all it has to make is game six. If it goes six games, um, there you go. All Wrap right, it all in. All right, guys. So that has been Q1 here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week, usually by Zoom, sometimes occasionally live, usually by Zoom. You guys can jump into the conversation a couple different ways. You can hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle up there at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports, sports analytics. We'd love to hear from you. Give us suggestions, ideas, complaints, whatever you got. You can also catch us in our mailbag. Drop us an email. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. We love hearing from you guys. We read everything you send in. We get as much of it as we can on the air. So please keep dropping us those emails. We are rolling into the second quarter. We've got the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. This is Cade Massey. We are going to do an interview segment here in the second quarter. And we're excited because this is kind of officially launching our World Cup coverage. World Cup 22 is just around the corner. And to help get us ready, in the first of a series of soccer guests we're going to have over the next two months, six weeks, two months, is Elliot McKinley. Elliot is a data scientist and contributor at America, American Soccer Analysis. 
He has a fancy degree, PhD in biomedical engineering from Vanderbilt, still hanging out in Nashville. He writes for the Washington Post, for The Athletic, for ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle is E.T. McKinley, at E.T. McKinley. And we're delighted to get a chance to talk. Elliot, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you, man. So really just give us a sense from your perspective, from someone who's a little more soccer centric than we are, where is your mind? How ready are you for the World Cup? How obsessed are you at this point? Or is it not quite hit? Is it not really final approach yet? Yeah, it's still, you know, we got a little bit of time. It should be good. Uh, I think what U.S. plays England on Black Friday. Is that right? I think um, that should be is that the, good op- for that the opening match. Not the opening match. Wales is the first match, right? Yeah, Wales is a match. I'm I'm looking for that Black Friday, you know, sharing with my family what's going on with this stuff. Okay. Yeah, right. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Um, Well, let's talk. We want to hear from you mainly on two different fronts. Um, Soccer analytics, because we're always trying to remind ourselves and catch up to where soccer analytics has gone. But then we kind of want to know, you know, what's going on with the U.S. team? How does it stand? Um, How's the draw look? What's Berhalter up to? What's the latest drama? Have we, is it safe to pull for them or is it another heartbreak? So give us a little bit of insight into how you think the U.S. team is shaping up for this World Cup. Yeah, so uh, might be a little rough going into this. You know, the U.S. has lost a couple games coming in. They've had some friendlies that didn't do so well. Um, you know, they kind of stumbled through some qualification. Uh, some Twitter people are not happy with the team, but that's that's par for the course with Twitter. Should we abandon and just get behind the Canadians who crushed qualification? They just ran out to a lead and, and embarrass everybody else. I don't know if we go that far, but uh, you know, it's, it's a, you know, kind of a tough draw. You know, you got England, obviously it's who's England, um, Wales, who's kind of England, but you know, next door there, um, you know, if they got Gareth Bale, um, I don't actually know who much is us on that team offhand, but, you know, they went through a, 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 a playoff to get there. And then, you know, well, got Iran. Yeah. And they've got Iran in the group, which, right. you know, geopolitically is interesting at least. Um, but also maybe better than, you know, we think, you know, they're in Asia and it's, we don't get coverage of that as much, but. Well, okay. So we're supposed to be worried even about getting out of the group stage. So your two teams come out, we're just going to grant that England's going to make it and we have to scrap with Wales and Iran to be the second team. I know it doesn't usually play out that clean. And you're saying, well, you know, either one of those other two, teams could do it what I are mean, the last st- time last time we were in a group of england we uh we were first in the group so uh right 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 um tell us a little bit about the team um what what and what should we what should we be getting ready for as fans and and what should we be watching for as we start watching those guys play yeah the the main thing here is you know the u.s is a very young team i think uh i don't know how the stats on it but they were one of the youngest teams in world cup qualifying in the world um, so it's a lot of young guys, you know, we don't have experience with the world cup since, you know, we missed it in 2018. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know if there's anybody there just maybe a handful of people coming back from that. Um, so generally and it's a young team. We have some t- t- players that play on big clubs in Europe, you know, like Pulisic at Chelsea and Weston McKinley at Juventus. Um, so, you know, it's young. We'll see how it goes there. Okay. Okay. Elliot, is there any reason to expect that, someone's play we were just talking in our first segment about postseason versus regular season baseball is there any reason to expect that someone's postseason i'm sorry world cup soccer play would be different than their regular season soccer play except for the fact that teams are better maybe they're playing with different players it could be the time of the year uh what what are your expectations 
Yeah, one thing with soccer that's kind of different from at least baseball, for example, you know, it's it's much less individualized sport. So, you know, team play is very important. Um, and with international teams, the team, the players just don't have as much time with each other as they do with their clubs. So, you know, and, and clubs play differently than international. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of a complex situation here. You know, if you have a player that plays a certain style with their club team, they may play a completely different style with their, with their international team. So is there, is it any, is there any chance that the U S team will take longer to come together because there are more guys playing internationally is I'm trying to, I'm reaching for straws here to say, you know, it's a good thing because, you know, it, it reflects the internationalization of our team and, and it's just going to take us a while. We'll get together. eventually. These friendlies don't pay attention to the friendlies. <laughs> I mean, there's some of that, but the, the other issue here is that this world cup is in the middle of the European season. Uh, so it's, it's, it's in Qatar, you know, it's in the winter, typically the world cups in the summer. Yeah. which is after, you know, those European seasons usually finish. Um, so, I, you know, so basically most teams are going to have a little bit less time to prepare, you know, overall, not just the U.S., but all teams. Okay. okay. Um, so, you know, it's going to be interesting how teams are going to be able to kind of gel together in a more limited time. And, you know, they're in the middle of, they're in the middle of their club seasons too. So, you know, are people getting injured? You know, there's all kinds of interesting things going on this, this year mm -hmm. that's different than years past. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the board. I'm running down the odds here, and it's I'm a little chagrined to see how far down the board the U.S. is. It looks like, I don't know, 15th or 16th longest odds, um, shortest odds, I should say, um, for the championship. Brazil, man, we, it feels like we haven't seen them since they got shellacked by Germany a few World Cups ago, but they're at the top of the board here. Brazil, France, Argentina, England, our group, stage mates, England. Spain, Germany, all the way down to sixth. Gracious. What do you make of the board? Who do you think might, who do you think people might be undervaluing or overvaluing? Yeah, it's, you know, it's with these international tournaments, it's really hard. You know, once you get out of the group states, it's knockout tournaments. You know, once you get to that point, it's, you know, it's all bets are, you know, kind of out the world. You know, odds don't matter as much, but, you know, it's always hard to, but, to bet against Brazil, you know, France won the last world cup with a bunch of young guys that are almost all back. Um, you know, Argentina still has Messi. you know, maybe at some point he's going to finally put it all together and win. Oh my world gosh. Cup really? really? Is, is, he, is he not, is he not, how far past his prime is he? Is it okay to still expect anything out of him? Uh, well, he plays for Paris St. Germain in France. And uh, I just saw a tweet, you know, just before we started here, I think he's the only player in Europe with 10 goals and 10 assists. So, you know, he's, <laughs> Okay. 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 I stand corrected. Bradlow. Yeah. So Elliot, one of the things we always talk about a metric we like to use to talk about how much uncertainty there is, is I give you X teams and you give me the field. How many teams do, what's a fair bet here? I give you the top five teams, six teams, you give me the other 26 or how, what would, what would be your number? Yeah, I would probably say five or six is probably, is probably right there. Um, okay, let's, just, know, let's just speak that so you'll get how, how it feels. You're saying off the top of the board would be Brazil, France, Argentina, England, and Spain. Yeah, right? I think you've got to, I, I would take that, you know, I'll bet you one-to-one -one on that, you know. Okay, so let's just be able to unpack the other side to really feel it. And that's Germany, Netherlands, Portugal, Belgium, Denmark, Croatia, Uruguay. I'm, a, I'm on Uruguay's bus by far. It's always a fun team to pull for. So those are the team and U.S., of course. Those are the teams you're eschewing 
in your 50-50 bet. Eric, which side of that do you want? You pose the question. Which side do you want? Um, well, given Elias said five, I think I'm taking his five. I, I don't think – I just don't think I'm making it up. Like 20 of the teams are almost absolutely worthless, so there, there's no chance that they can put enough games together to win the whole thing. I'm not saying it's not impossible. There's some uncertainty. Maybe they get to the knockout round, but they can't win enough games. So now Elliot's basically given me seven worse teams than his five. So I'm taking the five over the seven. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's fascinating to me That's just to have a comment, give, given how, like, it seems like on a game-by-game basis, soccer seems very stochastic, very random. You know, it always comes down to, like, one or two plays. At the same time, you know, the World Cup, we, we've just sort of said that, like, we can basically consolidate about half the probability of winning in five out of 32 teams. And... You know, it's not like the World Cup is like best of five, best of seven. They're single game knockouts, at least the second stage is. So um, it's just, you know, it, it's kind of fascinating that, that soccer seems very random, especially the international matches that I've ever seen. But the same teams win every time, despite that. Yeah, we wrote an article um, a couple months ago looking at basically disparity and how that uh, related to predictability in soccer. Um and so basically we did a Gini coefficient looking at, you know, how disparate teams were by points. You know, we would like to do it by pay, but we don't have that data for Europe, which we do have for MLS. Um, but basically we showed that, you know, in Europe, because there's basically, there's such a high disparity in quality of play essentially between the best teams and lowest teams that it's pretty predictable over a full season, at least, or generally more predictable, but like MLS is very, uh, there's a lot of parity in MLS. Major League Soccer here in the U.S. and it's there's like you can't predict anything basically. All of our metrics are useless for predicting what you're going to do. But again, that's over a season. You know, over a game. You know, that all bets are kind of off there. You know, mm-hmm. I, I used I wrote an article on using data from 2001 to 2010, including um, somewhat private data that ESPN was able to gather, and the the difference between soccer and its predictability, in particular the the English Premier League, and all the American major sports is just monumental. It's unbelievably predictable, not in the sense of who's going to win, but if you want to look at the top quartile versus the bottom quartile of payroll, there's essentially no winners in the bottom quartile. There's been one exception in the last 10 years. Um, that was Leicester City. But it's, you don't see that in any other sport where there's far more, um, where there's actually considerable amount of pay disparity, but nothing like the predictive. Adi, um, you're saying you're saying you're saying there's a stronger correlation uh, between pay and team success in yes. Premier Soccer. Yes, uh, it's it's just enormous, and I always found that befuddling because um, the the pay gaps are are big, but they're no bigger than baseball. Yet yet you, you invest in baseball players, and it just doesn't work out on the field the way it seems to work out in soccer. And I always well, it's a much shorter season too. Yes, so 30, that, 30 I mean, games or something of that order. So you can imagine that should go, that should that go, should go the other go way against it. Yeah, there <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, we've been meaning we've been. Yeah, we've been meaning to look at that. We, we had like a series of articles looking at this kind of disparity situation and using things like expected goals to predict results. And we were, it's in our, it's in our docket to look at another sports as well, kind of update maybe kind of some of the things you've done. But yeah, um, Europe is just super, super predictable. You know, Bayern Munich's always going to win in Germany. That's just the way it is. You know, right. One of right. four or five teams in England's always going to win either Real Madrid or Barcelona's going to win in Spain and sometimes Atletico Madrid comes in, but you know, it's kind of predictable. Yeah. So Elliot, let's talk a little bit about where analytics is in soccer maybe start with is the, the style of play and what's, is there an, 
is there, are there techniques or styles that are favored by more analytic savvy teams? We could say in American football, for example, we could say some things that are kind of hallmarks of more analytic savvy teams. We could say the same thing about basketball, a little bit less so maybe in baseball, but we could, we could suss it out. If we were looking for those distinctions in soccer, what would we be looking for? Yeah, it's not quite nearly as clear cut. You don't like, you know, have teams that just shoot threes all the time like you do with NBA. You know, we don't have well, yeah, soccer is just a lot harder to analyze than many of the other, you know, sports. You know, it's a free flowing game. It's bigger. Uh, you know, well, the field big, is but, but there are trends. So, you know, we yeah. the, the Spartan so, Spanish wasn't the Spanish teams famous for possession for a long time. Yeah, like that the thing. They were they were Barcelona possession, but you know, we've shown that pos- it's been shown that possession itself doesn't necessarily correlate to winning games. Um, you know, there's some things about, you know, high pressure teams so teams that are good usually will put high pressure on the opponents so you know they they close down on the ball quickly um and try to get the ball back and like closer to the other team's goal because a lot yep. of soccer is you know it's kind of a you know field position battle in some senses where you know yep. you're more likely to score if you're close to your goal which is kind but, of uh, so real quickly close down mm-hmm. do you mean both they play their their defense forward on the field and also that they play more aggressively to anybody who has the ball is it both yeah things like that down? so they'll play which so like that further up the field would be known as a high line for example yep. so yeah and then yeah and then pressing was you know what's referred to as you know going you know to to go against you know the, your opponents Okay, so you start to say there is that that is one style of play that some of the better teams use. Is to, that to some extent, of players or could you can you play that well, way if you don't have the quality? So yeah, it's a little bit tough. So in some regards, that that high pressing style is what some teams who don't have the best players do, because uh-huh. if you're you know if you don't have the highly technical players that can play a really good pass, uh, then maybe you just want to make things chaos and try to you know get the ball back as soon as you can. Kind of invest the, in variance, basically, because I assume that kind of pressing strategy opens you up to counterattack, right. which has yeah, a one some disadvantage. Extent. Yeah, right. Uh, okay. But you know, teams that are able to do this, you know, Man City does this. They do a lot of this kind of high pressing, but then they'll drop back if they, you know, if they're not able to get the ball. But then, then they also have the technical ability to you know break down these other teams. Uh, that, you know, these the teams that may not be as good, you know, have as high quality or players will not. So is there, is the U S team known for a style or is Burhalter known to favor any particular style? So he used to coach for the Columbus crew, which happens to be my favorite team. I grew up in Columbus um, in MLS and there he played a highly possession style, which didn't do a lot of this pressing. Um, and with the U S national team, he's changed a little bit, kind of gone a little bit higher with this pressure. Um, wants to play more vertical, which is are his words, you know, getting the ball forward as quick as he can, uh-huh. maybe a little bit less possession, but you know, it always depends on your opponent. So it is highly dependent. You can't quite dictate things. At least the U S can't because we don't have you know, the players that say a uh, Spain does or a Germany does to kind of impose our style on everybody. We can well, do it against, us, you know, give us an example of the way it's contingent on the opponent. Like what could you yeah, do? Yeah. So yeah. When you play, for example, United States, you know, plays in CONCACAF which is Northern and Central North America and Central America. And you, when you play a team, say like St. Kitts and Nevis, who, you know, has a population of, I don't know what it is, 50,000 or something. Their players are, you know, not as high quality as the U S. So then they will typically try to like bunker, you know, it's known as parking the bus um, where they try to just prevent, you know, you from even getting close to the box, you know, if you hit crosses and they want to just get bodies in there to stop you. And when you do that, you can kind of, you know, have time to have possession. However, when you're playing a team, you know, like England, for example, 
who has players that are better than the U.S., you know, on a whole. Um, <laughs> you know, the U.S. isn't able to impose what they want to do. They have to be more reactive to, you know, what's going on mm -hmm. from the other team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was going to, I was just going to ask about the, you know, bunker strategy, good team, bad team. But since you already answered that, let me ask you a different question. When you say the U.S., let's say, is not as good as Germany, I can mm -hmm. imagine a couple ways that they could not be as good. One could be that the variance is the same for both, but the mean is lower for the U.S., or it could be the U.S. has equally good top-end players, but not enough, enough, not as much depth. How? What is the distribution of player strengths of, let's say, the U.S. versus, let's say, a top-five team? Yeah, um, I think U.S. is lacking in both of those things. So we do, <laughs> you know, we just don't have the top-end players. You know, we have a couple. You know, we have a couple of players. You know, maybe three or four that are on like Champions League teams. That are complete, you know, that are competing for you know, Champions League or their domestic titles, um, and then you have guys who are on kind of second tier teams, um, and not as many of them. And then you have a bunch in MLS. I'm not saying is MLS is bad. I, I'm I'm an MLS evangelist, um, but you know, it's you know that people will say like there's it's, you know it's not the same quality of players there. And, you know, the U.S. just doesn't have as many of them. You're st we're still kind of a young soccer nation compared to, you know, most teams in Europe and South yeah, America. Yeah, but we've been saying that for decades. Yeah, I mean, soccer is always the sport of the future. Yeah. Right. And just one quick follow-up to that. Given that's true and the U.S. knows that, Germany knows that, everybody knows that, is there a certain style the U.S. should play or should they practice more together or is it could coaching overcome it? I'm basically asking you an effect size question. Yeah. So training help? Yeah. What would help? Yeah. So we can't add more training. There's just not enough time, you know, okay. teams don't let their players out to go train for national teams. They open them up to injuries and kinds of things. But one way that teams who would not have the technical quality of other teams do is they'll kind of, they kind of do a bunker and counter style. So they're kind of sit back and then try to make these fast breaks, yep. you know, when they have the opportunities, you know, so if you can't break down this other defense, you know, as they're set, you maybe try to do it when they're a little bit, you know, discombobulated, yep. I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Elliot, we just have a couple of minutes here. Give us a sense of where the field is analytically. Like, What is the cutting edge? What's a question of the moment in soccer analytics? Yeah, so the main thing that we always want to know about is things that are happening off the ball. Um, so typically, you know, everyone is watching what's happening on the ball. We can quantify these things pretty well. We have various metrics for doing possession value, you know, valuing how people or everything that's done on the ball, like a pass or a shot a tackle, things like that. But most of the, the lots of things in soccer are happening off the ball, you know, defensive positioning, uh, you know, a, a striker making a run into the box, which are things that you don't get on the box score. We don't get from data that's just, you know, collected by seeing what happens on the ball. Now there's tracking data with, like they have in the NFL um, where we have the position of every player on the field. Um, Ellie, what's an example of what are you what are you trying to learn? What's something you hope to learn about this off ball movement? Off ball. Yeah, position? we want to know how which how is it valuable? So you know, is a player making a run into the box a valuable situation? We know it is, but we want to know how many times they're doing it. You know, are they dragging defenders, making space, and things like that? Which is a really hard problem to solve. That I know lots of smart people are working on, mostly probably in clubs behind the scenes that we'll mm -hmm. maybe never see. How much of that is going to be player dependent? And so it's a quality of the individual versus a strategy. Uh, it's a little bit of both, but, you know, certain players are very smart about the way they play. So, you know, you see like Messi, for example, he walks around most of the time on the pitch uh, and then will just all of a sudden pop up into space and then score a goal. 
And so, you know, that it seems like magic almost when he does that thing. So mm -hmm. he's got something where he can see, you know, where the space is, where the, uh, where his opponents are, you know, where his, his, his teammates may be able to get the ball to him is able to find, you know, those spots to make the, make the, do, the do you think we'll ever learn is, can we learn from all this motion tracking and analysis, the fancy analysis that's emerging, what strategies others might emulate so that it's not just this intrinsic thing to messy that that's magic. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal. You know, we want to be able to quantify all of this and, you know, figure this all out. And I hope one day that will happen. Okay. Well, listen, you're helping us understand it a little bit better. And we're looking forward to the next month. Elliot McKinley, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Elliot McKinley, soccer analyst. You can find him on Twitter at ET McKinley, at ET McKinley. And we will have more soccer guests over the next six weeks as we dive into the 2022 World Cup. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us for the second half. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. The whole crew is in here. Adi Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. And this is Kate Massey hosting. We're actually recording this one in sequence, in chronological order. We can just talk about what just happened just off the line with Eddie, Elliot McKinley talking soccer. Level of enthusiasm for soccer, gentlemen. Level of readiness for the World Cup. I'm super excited for it. I mean, honestly, I love, I, I love I love the geopolitical aspect of it. <laughs> it's it's amazing. I just also think that these knockout round games, I mean, look, it's the Super Bowl and it's only played once every four years. Yeah, so, right. I mean, you get knocked out. I make it up. Germany plays Spain. One of those teams goes on. The other doesn't. I think the tension in these games is immense. And uh, they're, you know, in the for the history of the game, Every single one of those knockout games really matters. Yeah, that's right. And it's remembered yeah, forever. I, it's remembered forever. I mean, I, I would get even more hyped if it wasn't so top heavy. You know, I mean, we talked a little bit in, you know, our, the interview about the fact that, I mean, it's going to come down to the same five or six teams at the end. I, I would like, I would like a wider pool, basically, you yeah. know, where, you know, some place like, you know, some, some team like, I don't know. Costa Rica or something like that can like oh, it's actually conceivable. It's actually conceivable they can make a run and win it. Am I not correct, Shane, uh, Shane that, a, that in the last World Cup or, or the one before that the Netherlands made a deep run, maybe even to the final four? Yeah, and I mean the Netherlands are by far the kind of best team to have never won the actual uh, right. World Cup. I think I think yeah. kind of historically. What about, uh, but what about Croatia? Two two World Cups again? Yeah, I, well, yeah, they I made mean, the finals, yeah. right? They did make the finals. So I mean, I guess. You guys are arguing that we there there is at least some hope, some, some that chance, some team outside of the five or six that have won this thing before. I I, I just I I would like to see more unique okay, ways. I tell you what, I take away from Elliot's conversation. That's our first of a handful we're going to have. But I mm -hmm. take away already. I'm not I'm not getting my hopes up on the US team. Yeah, that, and I mean I think really I think a fun prediction would be we should pick you know which team we you know in a future week we should pick which team we're going to think is winning and then pick. You know, the team, if there was going to be a team that hasn't won it before, win it, which team should that be? Yeah, we can do one. some things. We can do some things with those odds. That's exactly right. All right, let's shift to American football and talk NFL. Talk about top heavy. Talk about a bunch of uncompetitive teams. Talk about not interesting until we get to the Super Bowl round. What the heck's going on with the NFL this year? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of really inconsistent play, to be honest. I mean, maybe I'm just biased by the two teams that I follow the most closely being very inconsistent in their own play, the Patriots and Buccaneers. Uh, but yeah, I mean, honestly, it, it's it's kind of hard to get particularly invested in any team that isn't the Chiefs or Bills as far as, go, you know, kind of our... our People are invested goals. in the Eagles. Goes. They're investing in your backyard sure. team. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, and I mean, you know, they have the advantage of ha- not having to play either the uh, Bills or the Chiefs until the Super Bowl. So that's 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 you know probably their probably that's probably their best shot right there. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously there's inter- interesting storylines like how good the NFC East is in general compared yeah. to what we kind of expected how bad the afc west is in general compared to compared, what we expected i mean yeah. i mean I, what about I, the I, precipitous drop-off of two of the all-time great quarterbacks so simultaneously simultaneous high dives from rogers and brady is it legit yeah. are they done is this i, I, don't, I don't think so i don't think they're done i think what happens it, maybe it's building on what shane said which is they don't really have great teams around them. Yeah. So the Buccaneers' offensive line is in shambles. Not only can they not really protect Brady, but they can't run the football. And then secondly, who's he throwing to? I mean, you say Mike Evans. Okay, Mike Evans is very, very, very good, Hall of Fame quality. Um, but Chris Godwin's not playing that great. They have no third receiver. And, of course, the Packers traded away maybe the best receiver in football. And so, you know, you have to be able to throw to somebody. We've talked about this a number of times. You need a clear number one receiver and a very good number two receiver to open up our opportunities in football. I wouldn't say the Bucs have, they have maybe a clear number one, not a number two right now that's not playing well enough now. And I don't think the Packers have a one or a two. Well, by the way, your Evans had one of the worst drops you'll ever see. In that team. was one of the worst drops ever. But I'm not even ignoring that. Yeah, ignoring that. About Mike Evans is that he's big, he's tough, he runs great routes, but he's not fast. So he's not opening up the field for other players, except to the degree that you have to put a big corner on him or potentially double team him. But no one's worried about Mike Evans running. And I, I, and, I and I think it's also. I mean, I think it's all I, I, with the Bucks. And, and I think the Packers, it's a lot of play calling, too. I mean, I, I just don't oh. think the coaching has been very good at all. Well, so, so, which, before, before we go there, can I ask a quarterback question? Because you guys are we're focusing on the quarterbacks here for a second. Just once, Shane, let me just jump in for a real quick sec. You know, our buddy Eric Eager has been pushing. He's just the latest voice, but it's the sharpest voice as well on. Look, before you sign a quarterback uh, with the big second contract, you better be dang sure he's it because it constrains what you can do for the rest of the team. And Eagles are kind of exhibit A here. The, 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 they have kind of the opposite model from the Packers, where they've got a quarterback that people coming into this season weren't even convinced were a, a franchise quarterback for the, and maybe some still aren't. But because he's on his rookie contract, they can put all their money on these other assets. And all of a sudden, you've got these receivers, multiple receivers who can make a difference on the field. If you had to have, you know, a Rodgers and a Brady or Brady and no other assets or Jalen hurts and a bunch of other assets, which would you rather have? And what does that say about team building? Well, I mean, if, if you can kind of guarantee that Jalen hurts is going to be so consistently good over the next, I mean, if he can play at that, at the level he's currently playing at for like multiple seasons. Yeah. You take that obviously, but I mean, you know, Carson Wentz also looked really good for a half a season too. Yeah. That's right. Um, but this you know, is I mean, obviously somebody like, I mean, you're kind of like, you're talking about two Hall of Fame quarterbacks that have been some of the most consistent 
Well, but maybe this is the ever. wrong time of their career to have all of that money tied up in them. Yeah, maybe, so, if, maybe if it's Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, you know, it's the same caliber, but a very different stage of their career. That's when you do it. So the second contract for the best guy is fine, but maybe did the Bucks stay too long on? I know I'm jumping the gun here, but did no, the Bucks stay possible. too long on Brady? It's possible. I mean, again, it's not about look. Anybody would take Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. At, I'm making up a number twenty million dollars a year, but that's not what they make. And you know, the, the team that's even in more trouble. And you talk about time of career might be the Denver Broncos oh, and yeah, they two hundred fifty million into trouble. Russell Wilson, yeah. and yeah. that's a player who nothing personal, but Russell Wilson was never as good as Brady or Rodgers, even in his prime. And you know, not every quarterback, he's also a much smaller player. Not every quarterback has a 20-year NFL career. And so he's already 32, 33 years old, who's now signed to a five-year contract. So they're in much worse shape than the other two teams. And I guess I haven't looked enough, uh, I, this would be interesting, we should get some of the PFF guys on or something like that. I haven't looked enough at the kind of individual metrics. I mean, obviously, neither Brady's or Rogers are putting up kind of good kind of box score stats right now because but I, I think a lot of that is on play calling and like kind of the talent around them how uh, Brady still looks like a very good quarterback in the sense that like you know I don't see this necessarily as evidence he's done e- even if they have a bad season and they you know, I mean they're, you know they're I mean they're kind of on the trajectory to be kind of a one and done in the playoffs right now yep. um if Brady go like let's say Brady decides again to not retire and he goes to another team. Do you? Uh, I mean, would you not automatically sort of say, "Oh, well, he's you know, I I I think he could still have success again." I I haven't seen enough drop what off. I'm with y'all say, what I'm hearing y'all say is that they're, you know, the Mahomes and Allen elevate the players around them probably at that level, and Brady and Rogers, as great as they've ever been, are probably not at that level now. You can't drop them into any old situation. Mm-hmm. and expect them so they need to be they need yeah. to still have that and it's especially tough to surround them with those assets if they're at the peak prices that they're at that's kind of hey, look, hard. I mean, but i think what shane's also saying is they're not peyton manning with the broncos at the end of his career yeah, they're a lot they, better okay. than that but i'm yeah, saying or matt ryan with the colts yeah but i think shane's right there's probably five or six teams where you yeah. put tom brady on that team they get much better and because the team around him is really good that um you know they could win matter of fact who would you rather have shane right now would you rather have jalen hurts or tom brady on the eagles everybody else on the team stays the same it's a tough one i i mean i think the eagles their their offense is so well designed around kind of that running sort of game and what hurts does with his legs i think i would actually still take hurts but i mean you know i think tampa bay lose another couple games and they should do us all a favor and trade Brady to San Francisco. How amazing would that team be with Tom Brady as quarterback? Yeah, right. I agree. Uh, that's, hey, that's, hey, that's, that's an example of a team that it could make sense. Yeah, yeah right, 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 right. So the, I mean, the Bucks are so far down that the fairly upper middle tier Ravens are favored visiting Tampa Bay this weekend. So, I mean, the Ravens have a lot to prove yet. They, they finally won a game. Well, they didn't even win convincingly. They got yet again, got ahead and then almost gave it away. I, I don't know. I don't believe enough in the Ravens this year to know how they're going to do down in Tampa Bay, but I was, it's, it's interesting to see them an underdog. Yeah. I, I, I would take the Ravens over the Bucks as they're currently playing. Obviously. I do I think that the, the, 
just to, one more last thing on the Bucks for, uh, and Packers. The Packers, I think, are in much more trouble just because their division actually has like a good, you know, kind of a team with a good record in it. I mean, the Bucks are shuffling, are struggling right now, but are still probably the odds on favorites to win that division, even though they're below 500. Well, they are. I mean, with mass, I'll just use Massey yeah. Peabody numbers with, I assume this is unabated sim. Um, looking there, the Bucks are a 75.3% to make the playoffs and a 66.8% to win the division. So that's, I mean, that's ridiculously high. I mean, well, I, you know, the thing is about power rankings is they don't always know if the, if the, if the team is crumbling with injuries, for example, that's going to be a little slow to catch up on some of those things. So it may be overestimating the bucks right now, but your point, Shane, is well taken. The competition level is just a different thing. One of the th- numbers that most jumped out to me about this coming weekend is that the Rodgers-led Packers are double-digit underdogs in Buffalo. And Rodgers, I think, has never, ever been a double-digit underdog before. Isn't that amazing? That is pretty incredible. That's pretty incredible. Well, uh, by the way, the Packers are three and four, right? So if they lose, they're three and five? Yeah. Yeah, so they're in trouble. No, I mean, because they're already three, I think at least three games, because maybe four if you think about the tiebreaker behind the Vikings. Right. The Vikings are five and one right now. So that's correct. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, they're, they're, they're in real, both, both those teams are in trouble, but the Packers are in that much more trouble. All right, gents, what about on the college football side? Anybody pay any attention to this past weekend? Anything of any interest coming up? Am I going to have to lead you through the notable games? I am. I am indeed. And we're going to have to go look at CFB Nate. We, no. we, we, shamed, she, we shamed Nate into getting his uh, numbers out to us earlier. So I'll share a screen here in a second. But let me just run through the games real quickly. Um, what is most interesting? There are, we've had a couple of phenomenal weekends the last couple of weekends, and it's a little bit lighter this time around. You would have thought Florida-Georgia would be a good game. Georgia's 22-point favorite there. You would have thought Kentucky-Tennessee was going to be a good game early in the season. Tennessee is a 12 and a half point favorite there. Don't overlook Kentucky going into that game. I would say Tennessee could be a little full of that themselves. That seems like a trap game, right? As, as, well, like as, as well as Tennessee's been playing. Exactly. I'm it would be you. tempting to take Kentucky on that, you know? One of the best games out there, it's slightly below the radar because both lost last weekend, but Oklahoma State and Kansas State are playing what is almost an elimination game in the Big 12, and they're evenly matched. That game is in Manhattan. The Wildcats are one and a half point favorites. KSU has one loss. Oklahoma State has one loss. And TCU is sitting there undefeated. So one of those teams is almost going to be eliminated from Big 12, whoever loses. That's a, that's a big game for the Big 12. A couple others that jumped my, caught my eye. A&M loses in South Carolina last weekend. Get to come home and host Ole Miss. Ole Miss got pounced by... LSU last weekend and they are favored against the Ags. Ags really kind of melting down. It's going to be interesting to see whether they can turn the corner. Hey, this hey, just looking at TCU, I'm just looking yeah. at there. They've beaten a reasonable SMU team and then four straight ranked teams, Oklahoma, Kansas, Oklahoma State, and Kansas State. Is there any reason why, if they run the table, that they have to be in the they they would have to be in the final four with that schedule, right? If they beat um, West Virginia, Texas Tech, Texas, Baylor, and Iowa State to end the season, they're undefeated. They've beaten four ranked teams. They would be in the final four, right? Well, it t- depends. It always depends on what else happens. Here's the argument for They also will have gotten a nice win in the Big 12 championship, presumably. Right. If yep. they do that. 
Um, the biggest question would be whether Clemson comes through undefeated. Clemson, who barely squeaked by Syracuse after earlier in the season, barely squeaking by Wake Forest. You're not happy with a SEC champion, Big Ten champion, Big 12 champion, and ACC champion. That could happen. But what about, um, you know, an undefeated Georgia goes all the way to the SEC final loses. And loses to Alabama. I mean, come on. We know so now you've got happen. the SEC champ, the, the non-SEC champ, one loss defending champion, longtime number one Georgia. That's just one oh, scenario. TCU ain't making it then. Well, no, I'm not saying they won't, but I'm saying in that scenario, you might have, for example, an argument about which is the better team, undefeated Clemson or undefeated TCU. And I think a lot would argue for TCU with the record this mm-hmm. year, if that because Clemson's playing nobody. The only teams that are playing, they're barely beating you. But Clemson is more, you know, esteemed. They've had better history recently. The power numbers probably like Clemson. Let's, let's just go to Nate's numbers and see what they say about Clemson and TCU right now. Right now, Nate's blend, this is CFB Nate, Nate Manzo. Nate's blend has Clemson about seventh in the country at about plus 19 or so. TCU, not very far behind. They're down at like plus 17 and a half or so, just a couple points below Clemson sitting more like, you know, number 11 or 12 in the country. So TCU could make up ground. They, if they went out, they would make up ground. Clemson probably not going to make up a lot of ground. So in fact, the, the models might have them much closer by the end of the year if they do come together. I'd love the debate because I think, I, I think I'd be on TCU sides because I'm so short Clemson. I hate it when these teams that don't seem to be deserving it barely get by. They should have lost against Syracuse. And then they're not going to have to play anybody in the ACC final. I hate First, it I'm tired. Like, you know I'm tired. I don't want a one loss. I don't want the loser. If Alabama beats Georgia, which, as Shane said, is you know very well could happen. I just don't want to see both of them in the championship. I don't want to see it. Not well, Eric. How do you feel about how do you feel about if we get an undefeated Michigan against an undefeated Ohio State at the end of the regular season without even going to the Big Ten championship? One of those teams has to lose, obviously, but they will have arguably been one of the you know, two of the top five teams in the country. And just because they lose to the other one doesn't mean they're not still one of the top five teams in the country. What do you do with that loser? The loser of that game, as you know, has no chance of making it because they're not even in the championship game of the Big Ten. I don't, I, but I don't, I, I don't think it's no chance. I think it's still a debate. I think it's low chance. I think it's low chance. I think you know the way I think too, Kate, if Ohio State were to be the loser in a close game to Michigan, I could see more of an argument given how strong Ohio State has played all season. If Michigan were to lose, given their also recent performance in the playoffs, I think Michigan would be kept out. Interesting. Well, the thing, the thing that's working against both of them is how weak the Big Ten is this year. The conference, other than those big two, is kind of nothing. And so they don't have much of a chance to build up a good record. Even Penn State, you know, was supposed to be legitimate and, and, and Michigan just housed them. By the way, Ohio State is going to Penn State this weekend. What's the line? In, in, at Penn State, the line is 15 and a half. And so you're just not running up against much competition. Yeah. They're not really much of a record. That's going to hurt the loser of that game in the case. Well, let's also be clear, Kate, with what you told us last week. It's not like Penn State's unranked. Penn State's like, you told us there's like a 14-point gap between the top three. Penn State's like 11, 12, 13, wherever they are. That's just what the gap is between Ohio State and the 13th or 15th, whatever they are, ranked team in the country. That's right. Well, there's one other team that's emerging into this mix, and that is Oregon. And they had a real nice win against UCLA, not just beating them, but kind 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 of putting it to them. 
And Oregon, for a while now, people have thought they might be the best team out there. And they are, they are um, trending. They've got some games to go. But if they come through this, if they win the Pac-12 championship, which is divisionless, and so they'll get a good second, they'll get a good team to play in that one, they'll sit there at whatever that is, 12-1, and one, and have a case. But strike, the big strike against them is that opening weekend loss against Georgia, which was like whatever it was, 45-3, or something. 49-3, to three. yep. So that's a that's another one in the mix, Eric. For you, you've got they can never go. Do we agree with this that they could never go over Georgia, ever? If they both had one loss, no. If Georgia right. loses to Tennessee and then that's different, makes but it they, they have to have Georgia with at least two losses to go over yeah. Georgia. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's it's rare you actually have a head-to-head tiebreaker in college football. You got to right. use it when you got it. Nine to three, one shame. Yeah. All right. Well, there's college football after a couple of really heated weekends. It looks like a little bit more of an average weekend. Still plenty of good fun to look at, but just, to, oh, by the way, Pitt's going into UNC. Let's give the ACC a little bit of love. Mm-hmm. Pitt at UNC. UNC somehow is holding on to a, a good record there, and um, Pitt was a, an early season favorite. The Tar Heels are three-point favorites in that game. Guys, um, we're a little bit into just the very beginning of the season, both for the NBA and the NHL. I'm always kind of entertained at this point in the seasons for these two sports when people are making a fuss over three and O stars, four and O stars, hot teams, bad teams. I'm just, I think it's virtually signalless at this point. Why do we have these articles? Well, why is it virtually signalless? Basketball is a classic game of, of a long, too long a season. It's not like baseball with three, three, Three games doesn't mean anything. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that it isn't meaningless. Is there something about the beginning of the season in basketball that is particularly not? Um, I think you're more responding to set like it's entirely sa- small sample narratives right now. Yeah, is that true? I mean, I mean, because when I mean, is that really true? It's a, it's basketball is a game where the better team wins, right? So not well, so let's 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 talk let's talk about exactly that. so a couple things. One, it can be slightly true without being worth the print that's you spent on it. That's the main thing is that people over, even if there's a little signal, of course there's some signal there, but it is nowhere near the signal that people act like. I tend to think of it a little, I tend to think of it a little differently. I mean, let me say two things. One is clearly in terms of expected wins, I think we'd all agree. Let's take the Lakers. Let's say they were projected to be a 45 to 48 win team, whatever the number is. So that's, you know, they're winning 60% of their games. They're, they're 0 and 3. So that's 1.8 wins they should have had at this point. They have zero. Okay. So already we have to downgrade them by minimum 1.8 plus possibly some downgrade to what their win total is, was going to be for the other 79 games. The second thing I would think about is the way I typically think about it is what's the likelihood that they're going to be a top four seed, which means I think the likelihood in the NBA, where this relates to what Adi just said, that a seven seed wins the Western conference, extraordinarily low. I mean, so now What's the probability I think the Lakers are going to be a top four seed in the West? To me, there is some information in these three games that suggests I know who they've lost to. I know by the scores they've lost. And so, yeah, things could turn around. But for them to be a top four seed, I don't see it at this point. And to me, that's all that matters because you're not coming from the seventh slot. And you're saying there's low signal. I don't agree. Not for that. Not for that. So what you're saying that. If you fit a, whatever probability model you have that simulates and predicts the Lakers making the playoffs, you would 
you know, you would you think there's an actual appreciable change in their probabilities? Well, yeah, I will. I'll tell you why. I just gave you the rationale. Let me say it again. Let's imagine that they have they, already. I have to downgrade them by 1.8 wins because that's the number of wins they should have had at this point. Let's imagine I reduce their win probability from 60% to 55%, which I don't think is that unreasonable. Now, all of a sudden, they're 5.8 wins, Shane, below where I had them at the beginning of the season. So all of a sudden, instead of them being a 48-win team, they're a 43-win team. To me, that puts you out of the top four. I, I, I think if, if you've, if you've adjusted right. their win expectations five yeah, yeah, games yeah, yeah. after three games, I think I don't need to hear the reason. I just I don't think that's – I don't think it's you don't think they you don't think you'd be willing to downgrade them from 60% to 55%. So here's here's my simple, simple logic here. I'll give you a fraction of their actual losses in my forecast. I will not give you more than their actual losses. Am I wrong? No, I'm exactly wrong, aren't I? I want to give you the actual losses plus a little bit more. Yeah, that's, that's what right. I'm doing. That's yeah, the yeah. math I just did. But I don't want you're giving them you're giving them too much. You're, yeah, you're, I, 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 I would, them not, too much I would the, not pull that latent sort of ability. I mean, what, yes, two percent losses. How about two percent? Will you give me two percent? That's one point eight losses plus one point six. So now we're at three point four losses. So now they've gone from a forty eight win team to a forty four to forty five win team, which puts you as the seven to ten seed in the yeah. West. Now you're in the play in game. I don't I'm know. agreeing with you. You're so, not going to. So you, I, I, I like, I like, I like your logic. The only place I could pin it on then is is saying that your change in their win probability is too strong. You're With two percent now, Cade, you can't say it's that's not well, too strong. Well, I don't know. I, we have to calibrate that because what is what's the average win percent? Point five. Obviously, what's the standard deviation? So are you, you're moving it off of three games? Do we really have the information? Here's my argument against updating much off these games. Okay, besides small sample. Two other pieces. Tell me whether you think these are valid. One, we don't know much about their competition right now. We think we do, and we don't. We we have expectations. They may or may not be the team that we expect. So we have to temper temper what way we opponent adjust this. But more importantly, and here's kind of the more tentative hypothesis, my claim would be of any three games in the season, the first three are probably the least diagnostic. How's that for a theory that the teams are still coming together? They're, they're, they're in no way fixed. Even their rotations aren't fixed. Their styles aren't fixed. I think I, I, that's, a, that's an empirical test. That's an empirical claim, actually, that the three first games or four first games or five first games are the least diagnostic of three, four, five of the whole season. I, 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 a question, like if, if uh, in baseball next season, the Yankees go like 0-3 in their first three games, like they lose, uh, you know, do you, do you move like anything like well, in your mind? I would, well, I, I'm going to, again, I'm going to move them at least. I'm going to remove the 1.8, which is, let's suppose they were a 60% team. So I'm going to remove the 1.8. I'm sure. going to move them from a 60% to a 58% team. No, you wouldn't. Well, you, yeah, hey, you should only move them half as much, right? I mean, there's twice as many games in baseball. At, at most, you should move them half as much. Well, even if I move them 1%, then there, there are at least three or four wins less in total. Than I would expect at the beginning of the season. I don't want you to move that much, especially yeah. this. I mean, this is one of the things I think that's interesting about basketball and hockey. I think people know not to update too quickly in baseball because it's so noisy. Well, you're but you're also, hockey, you're, but Kate, I'll use your logic against you, but I, I agreed with both things you said. You're making an assumption that there's this cliff at game four. No, they're going to go. I don't, no, I don't, I don't believe in cliffs. Me, I don't believe in cliffs. Let me finish my point. I don't believe in cliffs. Even reject the first point. I know, but I'm going to make my point and then you can reject it. My point is that you said the first three games may not be diagnostic. 
you said we don't know the level of competition. And maybe the reason it's not diagnostic is they haven't gotten to their steady state ability yet. That's in a continuous way. It's going to take time to get to there. They're not there right now. So as a matter of fact, maybe I shouldn't be taking 2% times 79. I should be taking 5% times the next 10 games. And then all of a sudden, that's a different number. And then I'm willing to go back to 1% or 2% for the next 60 games. But they're not just going to get to their steady state, even if that's where they were going to get to. So I'm actually being conservative when I say 2%. And no one has ever said, I'm conservative in anything. Let me just say, by the way, I'm Mr. Liberal. I don't, I, don't, I think you're you're litigating this, and I, I don't want to litigate it. The the I, I stand by my claim. I, I no, I think you're trying to win, and you're now you're making specious arguments because I no 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 no. no. Why that, why is this idea of a continuous drift back to the steady state? That's not a specious argument. That's a realistic argument. That's based on what you said. I don't. I don't know if we can model their change in that way. I just want to make the first tranche of gains, whatever size. And not in a cliff way. I want to make it less diagnostic than the rest of the team, the rest of the games. I'll, I'll, I'll make that strong prediction. I say take any end games from the beginning of the season, relatively small sample, single digit, and they'll be the least diagnostic series of games in the season of the overall season schedule. Over, overall seasons. Even, oh, 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 even the end overall after you've clinched. I don't know. Like, let's, let's jump garbage time. If a team is not playing their players, yeah, let's chunk that. That doesn't make any sense. But yeah, I'll stand by that. And I think that's just going to say you go real easy with your adjustments in the early, early in the year. I don't think a one to two percent adjustment is that much over. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm doing it too much of an adjustment, but maybe I'm doing it over too many games. So maybe it should be a larger adjustment for a smaller number. of. Games. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's one way to that's one way to reconcile our position. It's like, OK, yeah, that's that's a good reconciliation of the position. That's right. You know, may, maybe give you the dip for this trend, this supposed hypothesized transition phase, and then some, some smaller dip for the post transition phase. All right, guys, that's been college. That's been, that's been a little college football, a little professional football, a little NBA, by the way, everything we said about basketball goes through for NHL, I believe, yeah. except that it's except a there's new- about twice as many games played. So they're like six or seven games, but it's a noisy sport. I, I'm completely with you. Sport. It's, it's like not, I mean, it's, we can, I can get excited about some early season stuff, but it's not, predictive yeah yeah all right well we've got a little bit more in front of us including some election talk since we're just a couple of weeks away and we need to check in with 538 about that business that has been three quarters of wharton moneyball we still have a quarter to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you via Zoom, as we have for the last two and a half years, got the whole crew in here. One of the benefits of Zoom is that almost every week we're always here. Some combination of us are here virtually every week. Audie Weiner's here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. And this is Cade Massey. We are rolling into the fourth and final quarter of this week's show. We have a second guest. This is our traditional interview segment. We've had one today. This is our second. Santul Nerker. Santul is a writer and editor for 538. Santul is joining us this afternoon to talk both sports and politics. We are just a couple of weeks away. I think we're exactly two weeks away from the midterm elections in the U.S. And for those of you who don't know, 538 
you know, as much as they have their origins in baseball, real quickly behind that was politics. And uh, we're going to get both of those from Santo today. So hello. First, Santo, hello, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Good to see you, man. We're always happy to meet a new writer from 538. We're big supporters of a way, in a way. We're evangelists. We read you. We have you on the show, Neil Payne, one of our first guests, one of our most frequent guests. He'd be the Steve, if we were Saturday Night Live, he'd be our Steve Martin, most guested. And so we're always happy to have people from 538, um, especially because some of you guys are so kind of multilingual in your modeling. You'll dabble in baseball, then you'll jump over and dabble in other things like politics or culture. So we thought we'd grab you to talk a little bit of baseball and talk a little bit of politics. Let's start with baseball. We, we spent the first quarter of this show talking baseball, but we might as well hear a little bit from you. You've got a couple of very interesting pieces over the last month on some of our favorite topics. So first, let's talk about this pitcher article that you wrote recently. You said, hey, um, starting pitchers look like they're making a little bit of a comeback, a playoff comeback. Tell us about the case for this. And in the end, do you believe it or do you believe it might just be a, a, a characteristic of this year's playoffs? Yeah, so this was a story I worked on with my colleague, uh, Humera Lodi, and we basically found that teams in the postseason this year had been relying on their starters more than recent postseasons. So as you might know, October is the season for postseason relief, and teams have been leaning into that strategy quite a bit in recent years, um, to the point where you know you see uh, teams like the Tampa Bay Rays taking an opener approach, which is basically having their bullpen uh, you know, take, you know, take the team most of the way. Um, but we have seen a bit of a reversal of that this year. Um, and it's not as if we're going to start seeing like nine inning complete game shutouts consistently now. But I think the takeaway might be more that we've kind of reached a carrying capacity of sorts for bullpenning. Uh, maybe teams that realize that they've kind of reached their functional capacity when it came to uh, what their bullpens could do for them. Um, it could be maybe that the teams that are were playing this year just had better starting pitching. Um, I kind of touched in, on the piece why that might not necessarily be the case. Um, but I think it's probably a combination of some noise. You know, we published this fairly early on in the postseason, um, and the postseason itself is a very small sample size. Um, but it could also just be that teams have realized, hey, you know, we have kind of reached the outer limits of what's possible with this strategy. So maybe we should lean back into our, you know, our $300 million pitchers, for example. Santo, all the guys are trying to jump in. I'm going to ask one clarifying question. Then we're going to, we're going to fly through them. Shane, Eric, Adi, in that order. That's when they, that's the order they raise their hands. But first, tell us what the effect is here. Now, give us a, give us a sense of the actual change that you've, you're, you're observing. Right. So we saw that, like, for example, uh, 45% um, of, uh, of, of pitching was done by relievers uh, in past years. This year, when we wrote the story, it was down to about 40%. So that's from not 45 like, to 40. Yeah. Okay. So that's not that, you know, that, that's when we published the story and that's not like the most gigantic shift, but it does sort of reverse a trend that we've been seeing, which is kind of uh, having uh, bullpens and starting uh, pitching rotations kind of converge. So that it was, it was a noticeable shift, but it wasn't like, you know, you're suddenly seeing like uh, all starting pitching, just taking back uh, their. Okay. Uh, but you're, you're saying there's been this trend over whatever has been since our childhood, probably that, that relievers pitch greater and greater percentage of the innings. And, and you're saying that's reverse. And that's the first time we've seen that reversal for a while. 
All right. So that's right. the observation. Shane, Shane was going to jump in, then Eric, and then others. Well, just behind sort of some of the reasons that you gave for why starters might be being used a little bit more in postseason, especially after a regular season, you know, like the last few trends in regular seasons of greater relief use. One could be that teams baseball, another one could be that the baseball teams are practicing almost like the baseball version of load management for their starting pitchers, where they're essentially, you know, they're the relievers, they're taxing, you know, increasingly taxing their release staff during the year. In you know, in deference oh. to kind of the starting pitchers, keeping them a little wow. bit less, keeping their innings down a little bit. And now that they've got the playoffs and they can actually, you know, have their $300 million pitcher pitch more innings because they've managed that load. The, do you think, do it, you think it, that that's some kind of, there's some kind of load management going on? It could be. Um, I do want to issue a quick correction. It was actually 55% of all innings by uh, the bullpen last year. And it's down to 45%. Uh, through okay. Wednesday. Okay, so so that's that's a more sizable drop from last year, and again, right. it's the reversal that also catches the attention. Yeah, yeah. So, by the way, is this is Shane's idea of load management? Is that a well understood thing? That's not only in the small that you manage the loads, but there's a cumulative effect over the season that's going to impact their capacity in the postseason. And so, if you reduce the cumulative effect during the regular season, you're actually preserving some capacity for the postseason. That's a thing. I, I love the idea, but is that a thing? Is that noticeable? I mean, you can you just check where the starters pitching, the star starters pitching less in the last two or three weeks of the season. And no, I'm not actually saying I don't know it's the answer. like an intentional strategy on the part of teams. It could be just a little management. If pitch starting pitchers are pitching less during the regular season, I see. they have a lower, lower probability of getting injured there, and therefore they're more likely to be around in the postseason. Well, then we'll follow that up. Also, look at that. Yeah, 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 yeah did the yeah, starters right. pitch less this past year than they did in the previous year? Right. To get that 55-45 flip, you need to see something like that. Okay, Eric, you're, you were, you were going to jump in here on something. Yeah, Santo, I was just going to ask you, I would assume part of it is because of how postseasons are constructed that it's not the same as 162 games. You need really two great starters for, you know, even what the Rays do, um, they still have starters. Um, and so, you know, not for all five games necessarily in a five-man rotation. So do you think that explains it in some sense? Like teams have just realized that if for postseason baseball to be successful, having two great starters is there and they're going to eat up just a ton of innings. Yeah, that could be true. Um, just to uh, touch on the load management uh, point, it could also be the case that um, we've uh, pit, uh, teams are using load management more for their relievers. Um, I heard that come up quite a bit during the postseason about – it was more that I had seen in this postseason more discussion of resting your relievers and how you can't kill your bullpen in one in one or two days more than in past postseason. So maybe the question of load management has shifted more to the reliever side. Um, but I, I think we just we need more we like we need more postseasons of this to oh, like really know. I mean, all right. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I raise a question. I mean, we're looking at 2022 versus 2021 and before what's different about this year. So uh, one idea that's that follows, I think your, your idea, Eric, is this year we have compressed much more compressed uh, playoff games because of the, the strike in the beginning. So as a result, everything is piled up on top of each other with barely any rest days, which means that you better rest your relievers because they don't have the ability to rest themselves in the off dates, which means you're kind of pushing your starters to go longer. They're still on their same schedule. They haven't changed. Uh, they're on every fifth day like they've always been. Um, they get to pitch less because there's fewer off days, but um, the relievers now have to be managed. So that might explain why they're using less of them. Yeah, but right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out another hypothesis 
which I can't believe it's true, but nevertheless, it might be. Um, for many years, in the last few World Series, we've seen it. These managers have been yanking their starters so they didn't have to face, face the, uh, the third time through the order. Um, I just wrote a paper, and we, we, we put it published on the archive, which showed that the third time um, through the order effect insofar as that there's a, what we call a regression discontinuity each time you go through the order is not real. That's not there. And what, we're, what we think of as a third time through the order effect is simply the pitchers getting tired. And so what, what maybe is happening is the managers are saying, let's just look at our, our pitcher and see how tired they are instead of just saying, up oh, top of the order, time, third time through, time to go. Um, and that is a premature ex, uh, exit for, for many pitchers. So maybe that could be it. They read our paper. They scrutinized it. They changed it. I don't believe <laughs> Hold on, Adi. I'm just going to reiterate what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. It's become a mantra in, in recent years that there's this third time through the order effect, that a pitcher's right. effectiveness drops the cliff. The thing we were just talking about last time, a cliff. Any, I mean, anytime you see a cliff claimed, you should be suspicious. There's definitely a cliff claimed. But it's got some intuition because there's a story. If there's a narrative behind the cliff, there's even more reason to be suspicious. The narrative is, these guys have seen him twice. And the third time around, they kind of get his stuff or whatever. And so you come in and you study it and you say, no, actually, there's going to be a smooth decline because he gets tired. And also an effect that you posited really early, I remember you were talking about, Adi, was that those are the best batters in the lineup. And so it might look like it, but in fact, they're not batting any better than you'd expect them to bat any time except for the fact that the pitcher is tired. Am I understanding you correctly? That's right. And the pitchers actually, we do see a bit of an S shape, uh, not quite an S. They, many starting pitchers do get a little bit better as the game goes in to the first three or four batters. And then by the end of the first time through the order, batter seven or eight, they start to get tired, noticeably in, the, in, in terms of the hitting production. By the time they get to batter 16, 17, they are substantially worse than they were at batter three or four. And then yeah. it's hard to really know what happens after that because you start having selection bias. Okay. Good days stay longer with weaker days. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, but it's a clear, clear, smooth curve that happens as they move through, the, through that uh, yeah. middle of time one to middle of time three, actually beginning of time three. They just get tired. And, and that's as a function, you know, pitchers throw damn, so damn hard now that you can see and imagine that the starting pitchers just get more tired than they ever used to. Right, right, right. Okay, let's transition. We've got about 10 minutes left, and we got to hear a little bit about 538's work on election forecasting. We're two weeks away from the midterms. So until some of us have had our head in the sand about this, and we might need to be brought up to speed. Obviously, the House is up for grabs. The Senate is even more on the, on the knife edge. Um, so those are the national, big national races. There may be some notable other, there are certainly lots of down-ballot referendum issues around the country. There's obviously the question about, are people going to accept the elections of all kinds, everywhere it happens. But maybe to begin with, let's focus on these two big national issues, the balance of the House and the balance of the Senate. Is that a fair priority here? And if, if I'm missing something, let me know. And then let us Get us up to speed on what you guys are seeing and how you're thinking about those two big questions, those two big forecasting challenges. Right. So, well, right now, sort of just as a top line, um, our Senate forecast is very much shifted to being more like a toss up. Um, we, we recently tweaked our language to calling it a dead heat. Um, but basically, Democrats win 54 in 100 uh, times and Republicans win 46 in 100 times based off of the, the deluxe version of our forecast. If you switch to just what the polls are saying, that shifts to about 
two and three for Democrats and one and three for Republicans. But our deluxe model, which includes fundamentals, which includes uh, expert ratings, things like that, it's about 50-50. In the House, oh, yeah, so is 50-50 is a win for Democrats in your model? Or is that something different? Because obviously they have the tie-breaking vote. So I just want, I'm just trying to understand what a win is. Sorry, I, I meant to say they win they win control. So that's at least 50 seats in 54 50. out of 100 okay. uh, simulations. Simulation. Oh, but that, but that tiebreaker, that tie is it, it bends everything. It, it, it leans everything in their way because it right. ties go it goes 50 50 they win tie, tie goes to the dems here okay got it but santal you just for our understanding you said the deluxe model includes not only the polls and expert opinion great but also fundamentals which is always an interesting uh, input for political forecasts some people historically have done the entire thing based on fundamentals what do you mean by fundamentals tell us what fundamentals are in your model right so i so uh, very uh, quick disclaimer, I don't make the model. So, uh, and that's proprietary, so I can only share as much as I know. But fundamentals will include things like, uh, you know, uh, past, uh, past trends in, in midterm cycles and include uh, things like economics, uh, other, other factors that voters are, are considering as well. Yeah, so it's basically observables about, I think mostly as economics issues. Yeah. Um, okay, good. So you're saying the deluxe model brings those polls closer to even because the, you're saying the expert opinions and the fundamentals lean a little bit back the other direction for the for the Senate. Okay. Right, exactly. So if Funt- you're just looking at polls, it's good for de- it's better for Democrats. You said this shifted. What direction did it used to be, and where where has the shift been? Well, so you have to like go through several shifts. So initially, during the start of the year, before the Roe v. Wade, the the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. I think much of the both the conventional wisdom and the polling was uh, bearing out like a fairly, you know, a fairly comfortable victory for Republicans in both the House and the Senate, although the Senate was even still a bit of a toss up there. Um, But since that decision, you saw a very sharp uptick toward Democrats in the polls and how forecasters were uh, evaluating the race. And in about the last month and a half, there's been a little bit of coming home to roost in the sense that things have kind of converged back to it being in Republicans' favors because of the midterm effect, because because of the economy, because of inflation, things like that. Well, we um, talk, Central, we talk a lot about odds ratios. I track 538 politics every single day. It's something I'm passionate about. Um, probably at one point right now, I just looked, uh, that Republicans for the Senate are basically four to one. It's 81-19 right now. Um, at one point, it was down to two to one, which is a big difference in odds ratio. Hold on, hold on. Eric, you said Senate. Did you mean House? The Senate was also at one point, by the way, Democrats were at about 70-30 on 538 at one point. Now it's down, as Santos said, 54-46. So there's actually been a, I would consider it a fairly sizable shift in the last month back towards, you know, where they were, as Santos said, prior to the document. I want to ask a question building on that. We talk a lot about momentum on the show, mostly skeptical, unless you're Eric Bradlow. Is there momentum in these forecasts? Would you ever say, look, we've seen this thing move decidedly over the last month and we're going to put some weight on that? Like that in itself carries signal. Is that a thing? I'm not, I mean, I'm just, I'm curious. It, could, could that be a thing? 5-3 is pretty anti-momentum, I would say. Anti-momentum? Okay. Yeah, we're, we're very much in the, more in the camp of regression 
regression to the mean and seeing that as the yep. observable effect rather than uh, momentum. That's the more sophisticated play always. Regression to the mean over momentum, always the more sophisticated play. Oh, well, that, that's if you're dealing with random random uh, observations. And if you're and doing a stationary results, mean. And a stationary yeah, mean. Yeah, stationary mean. But if, and also you're doing polling results. Let me, let me just ask a question. I'll, I'll start off with, a, with a, a rem, two remarks. If 1948, Truman was losing and won the election. People think that had to do with bad polling. But I think the more sophisticated take has to do with he actually got out there and changed people's minds. Um, I'm watching carefully the New York governor's race because my daughter works for the governor of New York. That was supposed to be an absolute shoe in for 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 her boss, uh, Governor Hochul. And in the last two weeks, this race has gotten super tight and talk about. And I don't know what this means nationally, like, and I think it probably is indicative of something nationally. And what's happened is, is that people are focused on economy and crime and they feel I'm not going to explain it. That's not my job. But I can tell you that it has gone like from a fixed 16 point gap to essentially four or five, you know, depending on who you're talking to, frightening the crap out of me. Um, but uh, but what does this portend for the nation? I mean, the thing about polling is that you can only take a snapshot in time, but you're trying to predict the election, which is in weeks from now, two weeks or so, well, exactly. And there are actual things happen, right? And how do you model that or think about that? That's a great question. I mean, I think polls, right, are only just one piece of the equation. And I think one thing that our model does a really good job of is baking in uncertainty, baking in priors so that we don't overreact to one poll. Um, one of the things I really like that we do is that we take all these polls together and we aggregate them. Um, one of the things that people get on 530 about is for including, uh, you know, in, in their view, partisan pollsters, uh, yep. oftentimes explicitly partisan pollsters, yep. pollsters that, you know, may not confirm priors that we have about races. But all that information is is useful as, a, as another data point and as a way of uh, as a way of calibrating the model too. So, so Santo, you you know you guys know how much weight or how do you do you debias some of those partisan polls? Is there, are they kind of treated before they're aggregated? Yeah. So it, that I don't know the exact <laughs> formula for that, but it depends on our uh, our pollster ratings, uh, which we have a really good write up for uh, uh, that you should check out. Okay. But basically, okay. the really high uh, quality pollsters are given a bigger weight in our uh, in our election model. Okay. Okay. Well, talk to us a little bit about the house. Eric made a couple of references to it. What, what is the situation according to your models with the house vote? Yeah. So the house is looking has in, re, in recent days has shifted more to about a four and five chance for Republicans. Um, personally, what I, I find more interesting about the house race is sort of what are all these election denying candidates doing? You know, what are their chances of winning? Um, my colleague Kaylee Rogers wrote a really good story for us uh, uh, that went up today about sort of uh, the chances of all these election denying candidates winning. And basically, most of them are running in seats that are fairly safe for them for Republicans. Um, and so and most of those are also in the House. So uh, I think that is potentially the biggest takeaway of the. the of, of, uh, what is your what is the implication in your mind of that? Um, that we're that we're going to be electing more uh, uh, more people who don't believe that the 2020 election uh, was real, that was stolen. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that is, that is definitely a crisis in its own right. I was going to a different place, shorter term focused, which is um, that at least they're not losing. They're not on the losing side. So um, we have to listen to them complain about losing or fight the election or whatever, or another place, to, another way to put it is they're not in the places 
which will have the controversial close races. And so they won't be, they won't be as relevant about this election. You're saying, yeah, fine, but they're going to be more relevant about future elections and they're going to be in more position of authority to do something about it. And, e- and even if their own like local race, like say a house race is not particularly close within say the state of Pennsylvania, these are going to be the legislatures that then have to say, have something to say about the Senate race in Pennsylvania, which could be very close. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, if we were really paying attention, it would be to secretary of state races around the country because they have to certify the elections, right? That's going to be a big deal. Um, some of the referendums are around these referenda are around these kinds of issues. Um, there may be there. Do you have any, maybe you don't Santo, this isn't a fair question, but do you have any suggestions for us? Is there somebody who's monitoring all that kind of stuff? Is there an aggregator of those kinds of races are y'all, are y'all covering them in much detail? Yeah, so we actually have, uh, I can shoot you the link after the show, but we have a really uh, good uh, running tally of all the candidates that have denied the, uh, uh, whether the 2020 election was real. Um, from whether they're congressional candidates or state candidates? Uh, all like like uh, House candidates, Senate candidates, governor's candidates. Uh, okay. You mentioned great. Secretary of States and Attorney General too. Wow. Okay, great. So we we have a running tally of all of that, um, which I can direct you to. Okay, super helpful. All right. Well, listen, Santul, this has been great. Um, Thank you for 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 sharing your baseball work. And thank you for getting us a little a little bit more up to speed for the election in a couple of weeks. Glad to meet you. Um, Love what you guys do over there at 538. And we'll look forward to seeing some more from you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Very good. All right. That was Santul Nerker. And you can catch him more off of 538. He's also up on Twitter. Gentlemen, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. It's been another two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. For the whole crew, Adi Weiner, who just slipped away. For Shane Jensen, who came in hot at the top of the show. For Eric Bradlow. For Matty Datz, the boss man. For Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.